0: Business Power
1: Hour Welcome to the Business Power Hour where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters.
2: Well, it's a beautiful Thursday here in Cape Town. I'm Naja Swart here with my business colleague, Justin Rowe-Roberts, for our last show this week. Alec will be speaking to Dr. John Endres, who will be taking over from Dr. Franz Cronier as a new chief executive of the Institute of Race Relations. Dr. Endress will talk about the reasons for his published risk assessment and what we can do about it. They'll also be hearing from Denker Capital's Cookie Koyman, who will unpack Nedbank's results and the claims that insurance companies now have to deal with as an aftermath of the week of shame in South Africa. And then finally, our guest commentator this evening is Sassfin's David Shapiro, joining us from New York, and he will be speaking to Alec about the retail markets and how they've been affected by COVID-19. But first, here are the news headlines.
3: Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes
2: as your life changes. Deputy President David Mabuza is back in the country after his trip to Russia where he sought medical treatment. Mabuza landed back in the country on Wednesday morning, his office confirmed to Times Live. His spokesperson Machepo Sedat said Mazuba said Mabuza has resumed his duties. Although Mabuza is said to be back at work, it doesn't appear that he is back at his office at the Union Buildings. According to the Africa report, Mabuza's plane was seen on Wednesday on flight radar heading towards his home province in Mpumalanga. Mabuza in June requested two weeks' medical leave from President Cyril Ramaphosa, but ended up spending more than a month in Russia. He landed on Wednesday amid a litany of concerns from the country's citizens and political parties about his continued absence from his duties. ESCOM is in talks to raise about 33 billion Rand from at least five development finance institutions to help fund its partial exit from coal fired power generation. The money would be used to help the company repurpose coal power plants into sites that could produce renewable energy, gas fired electricity, and host battery storage, according to a presentation made to government. ESCOM and South Africa are under pressure to cut emissions of greenhouse gases and other pollutants as part of the country are among the world's most polluted and the utility accounts for about two-fifths of the emissions. South Africa is the world's 12th biggest emitter of the climate warming gases and almost all of its power comes from ESCOM's fleet of 16 coal-fired plants. So far, 200 million rand has been secured to conduct studies into the closing and conversion of the sites, which will affect local communities that depend on them to drive the economy in these areas, areas, the presentation showed. A further 16.1 billion rand will form an initial facility to start the program, while another 17 billion rand has been pledged, ESCOM said. South Africa's 350 rand social relief grants will start rolling out by month-end, Social Development Minister Lindiwe Zulu has announced with applications opening this Friday. Zulu said that it is not an automatic process and urged qualifying individuals to apply she promised that more pay points will be available for beneficiaries, and that the systems have been updated. In previous cases, over 10 million applications were received, and even more are expected this time. Zulu said that her department is also in the process of forming a policy to introduce a permanent basic income grant. Just, what's going on in the markets today?
4: Thanks, Nats. Uh, the JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 68,700. In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 37 cents to the dollar, 20 rand to the pound, and 17 rand to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,811 an ounce, a Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand, Brent crude is lower at $70.80 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 550,000 rand. The JSC was weak on Thursday, mirroring its global peers as investors remained cautious about China's regulatory clampdown on the technology sector. Tech heavy stocks had staged a rebound for the first time in three days on Wednesday after Chinese media toned down their criticism of the gaming industry. However, NASPIS, which owns 29% of Chinese Internet Giant Tencent via its global investment vehicle process, was on track to follow Tencent weaker in Hong Kong on Thursday after China's securities times took aim at the online gaming industry once again, citing teenage addiction and favorable tax treatment. Ethiopia's revived plan to sell second telecom license to international operators received an early setback as Africa's largest wireless carrier isn't likely to resubmit a bid, according to people familiar with the matter. MTN offered $600 million to enter Africa's second most populous country earlier this year, only to be rejected by the Ethiopian government. And while the state has since adjusted the terms of the auction in pursuit of attracting a higher amount, MTN seeks the investment risk, starting to outweigh the benefits, said the people who asked to remain anonymous as the deliberations are not public.
3: This market report was made just for you by Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
1: David shapiro's in new york wow dave uh we missed you on monday and then tuesday and then wednesday but we <laughs> we got you on thursday so at last we found you we found each other how's new york
5: well no, new york's new york it's coming right alec but there's still a lot of concerns uh, they're still very worried about COVID. you can see it in the faces of people when you go inside you still have to wear masks or it's still a convention to wear masks and also restaurants are a bit cautious about seating people inside so they've all built these kind of temporary structures that encroach onto the street where each booth is demarcated by a a, a kind of a a glass panel or it's probably a plastic panel so you're not on top of each other so they they're trying to adapt as best they can what i have noticed is an absence of tourism you know you're not seeing the many, many tourists that you would see at this time of the year in New York. You know, you used to see hordes of Europeans and hordes of South Americans coming through. You could pick it up from the different accents and languages and that, and that's absent. So I have no doubt that the retail side uh, has taken a bit of strain, and the other part of it, uh, you know, the tourist side of it, the retail side as well, of course, um, you know, that's, that, that's going to affect the economy. We have seen... All along the way you see closed shops, you know, and and, and big branches, Lockitain and a number of other um, international houses, you know, where you can see their little shops are being closed. So there are a lot of vacancies in the retail space here. So you say closed
1: in that it's not just locked up for temporarily, they they're out of business.
5: They're out of business, yeah. So it could be that tastes are adapting, you know. I mean people are changing their habits. And have gotten used to e-commerce and that but i also think it's it's just uh issues that we're going to face coming out of this pandemic you know a lot of changes so rentals on the other hand are going up here or if not going up they're holding and property values are going up you know you can see from uh it might be the season because it's summer and everyone's away and probably the the retail uh, sorry the real estate sector only picks up in in winter but it's uh you know, you can pick up that prices now. Housing or, or apartment prices or housing
1: prices are starting to pick up now. Uh, I'm sure you've been picking it up far away, though you might be from us. That the the whole attack now from uh, Beijing has swung against uh, the, the core of the South African stock exchange, uh, NASPAS, and particularly through Tencent and the and the gaming. Uh, it it doesn't appear that it's Quite, the penny has quite dropped yet here. It's 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 kind of uh, the rebound in the share price of 10 cent and then uh, a little bit on NASPASS as well. It's kind of, well, is it really as serious as people are suggesting? I'd like to get your thoughts.
2: I,
5: I, I'm not going to hang around to wait for it. You know, that's what I'm saying. So we've reduced our exposure. Alec, the biggest concern. The biggest worry that we have all and and, and and I'm trying to bring this into practical terms because a lot of our clients have owned process and masters for a long time. The the capital gains uh liability is enormous, absolutely enormous. I'm talking about um if you've had these shares for eight, nine, ten years, you your your capital gains liability is something like uh you know, you, you've made 90% profit on these you're up eight or nine fold so you pay capital gains to get out of it it's a massive massive uh hit so you've got to measure up the risks versus what you're going to pay in capital gains and whether this is going to pass temporary and we've taken the point of just reducing exposure and i think that's the best thing to do because i'm on your side i think this is a lot more serious it's just it's just the way the arbitrary way the way that they just uh make these announcements you know the spiritual opium and the issues like this and, and and if you watch around here you know and most people walk looking at their toes you know you don't see any new yorker i suppose it applies in or anyway no one looks up anymore they're all on their phones. and they pass the time if they're in a waiting room or wherever they are playing games candy crush you know the Titan, clash of the titans i don't know these games at all as well so you know to say it's spiritual opium it's just and what people use their phones for everything they do from communicating to paying to buying and everything like this. And I think games is just an added extension that whether he's applying, to, whether this is for the youth, you know, who sit for hours and hours playing these games, I don't know. And and having, having a grandson that is involved, I mean, that is 40, and 50, he talks to his friends like we're talking to each other now when they play a game. So yeah you're not going outside to kick a soccer ball or you know, that kind of yeah. stuff but you're still communicating it's still very much a social issue but i'm just worried about the way that uh, china is going about this they give you assurance one week later boom they hit you again so i think be careful that you know I, i'm with you in that area. i said just be careful this is bigger you know the chinese want to control the way their people act what they do, they don't want. They don't want any tall poppies. You know, they don't want to anybody just to get out of line of their authoritarian rules. So I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about where this is going. Uh,
1: also, this morning we republished for our premium subscribers a piece in the Wall Street Journal where it's made very clear that the communists love manufacturing, and they don't see the internet as much value add. And that is uh, uh, subsidizing heavily manufacturing, be- I guess because of the old philosophy that uh, manufacturing and heavy industry employs lots and lots of people. Of course, with rob- robots nowadays, it's, it's not quite the case. But it's, it's really a, a mindset that we living in constitutional democracies find very difficult to get our heads around. And I guess as a consequence, maybe we're missing a trick here as investors about not looking through the right glasses. I think you've
5: got to have a relook. look I think we've got to have a very, very close relook. look And I've, uh, you know, when you go into a country, I always remember Cookie, and you should talk to Cookie Koyman about this. You know, he's, and I'm going back years where he said, you know, you go into a Chinese, uh, you, go, you, you invest in China, and one day you're talking to the management, next day you ask, your phone are gone. You know, you just have no idea what's happening next. So, so... I I think you've got it. We don't understand the culture. I think we think we understand the culture. We don't. We don't understand what Chinese communism stands for. Um, We got used to Russian communism because we used to watch all the movies. But I mean, this is a different. This is is something completely different. This is a China has been around for uh, thousands of years. We just we still don't understand how they think and what drives it um i i i I believed i believe they still want to develop their tech companies i think they're very proud of their prowess and the technological advancements that they have made you know you can challenge they can challenge you on anything from robotics to and 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 also the chinese young people it's it's that's what i can't understand about it because this is their life you know they use uh technology far more than, than we do. I'm talking maybe the richer, you know, the West, if you wanted to, just for a, for a definition, um, they use it for everything and uh, far more from e-commerce because they haven't got the malls that, that we have. They haven't got the ways, you know, they can't walk down the road to, uh, uh, to, to a mall to buy things. So they have to use e-commerce. They use it. You know, and that's why they were using it for education because of, uh, for, for whatever reason. So, that's where I'm having the difficulty is is weighing up what the Chinese government say and the way they act. But I would rather say, okay, (laughs) I'm not going to hang around. Let me, let me withdraw. And we'll, we'll revisit later. You know, we'll revisit this later, but you, you know, you've got to keep pushing this. I think you've got to keep, you know, warning people. This is, this is not going to pass. You know, you've got to, this is not going to not be there tomorrow. It's not, uh, uh, a cold or flu that will go and come, in, you know, you, you'll, I think you've got to be very careful about how we play this.
1: Dave, the anarchy in South Africa during the month of July, I know you've only just arrived in New York and you probably haven't reconnected yet with the people that you know there, but have you got any impression yet of uh, whether this has changed views towards our country?
5: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No, they're very concerned because they see it in the same way as you uh, know the news media focus on those areas, but I think it's just the way that it went about, and those are horrific scenes that went around. So they're very concerned about where South Africa is. And yet, I am just looking at the market today, banks, retailers, all of these going through the roof. Now I'm trying to get that in my mind. Maybe your China story or the concerns about this China story concerns about these issues are now driving people back into SA Inc into retailers and saying, well, we've got to put the money somewhere. This looks like a decent bet. I'm guessing at this. I'm trying to, you know, I don't know the reason, but I've just seen some very strong gains, and it might be, uh, you know, uh, this view, so let's let's move out of the big techs in a process, nice person, look for somewhere else. But don't, again, don't dismiss what this has done to our image. This is not something... You know that's going to pass as well. I think those were very disturbing images that have, uh, you know, that are that are in the minds of people. So tourism, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I think even if things do open up, I, I think I think the concerns about visiting South Africa will be very intense.
1: Well, being caught up in something like that, Magnus Hystek spoke to us earlier in the week, and he's in at Valdivi. And he says the Pearl Valley Hotel, which is usually very quiet at this time of the year, winter in Cape Town's not not great. He says it's chock-a-block. You can't get in there for people from upcountry uh, coming down to the Cape to try and find a place to stay. So it's almost like uh, that yeah. has boosted uh, the best governed province in the country.
5: Absolutely um, no doubt. I a lot of people. I think a lot of people are immigrating as well. I think. Um, a lot of people must be thinking about the younger people. I don't know where they're going to go, whether it's to the UK. Um, certainly Israel is, you know, a lot of people are going to Israel and making headway towards Australia. You won't get in here. I think this is very, very America is very, very difficult. Uh, but um, but I, I, you know, I think younger people are having a relook. And for me, it's got the same image of 1986. You remember that time I think a lot of people left. Uh, and at that time, they left for, uh, a lot for Australia. If you ask a lot of people, so when did you come 1986, 1987? And I think we're getting a wave like that as well, which is concerning.
1: So what would you be whispering in Cyril's ear uh, to try and reverse this brain drain and, and loss of uh, taxpayers, particularly the, the youth who, who are, if you take them on a discounted cash flow basis, are so valuable uh, as part of the tax base.
5: And, and if we're suffering, you, you know, we don't realize that we're suffering from the effects as well of those people who left in the 70s, the 80s, and, and and thereafter. The average age of the Jewish community, and sorry if I'm talking about this, is now, I think, in their 60s. The average age is in their 60s. Yeah. That's so
1: horrific. David. What it means. That so, I have all the, all the kids it. and the grandkids left.
5: Wow. We asked the question, why are there so many Jewish deaths at the moment? Why, you know, from, we couldn't reconcile it. And one of the stories and one of the air, air responses was, well, the average age is now so much more older. And that's why you seem a lot more, because uh, it, it seems like a lot more. And, and what that shows you is how much of the community, how many younger people are no longer there. Now, I'm only using that as an example where it's been measured. So it's only the older people, the older generation, who are setting their ways and who are comfortable that have remained in South Africa. All the younger people have gone. And uh, and we miss that because so many talents are moved on, you know, from parents to children, businesses, uh uh, and, and family is very important. You want to be around family. You want to live around the family. In that. So I think it's, it's you know, if I can take an indication, I, I don't know what's happening in other communities, but I certainly know, and, and we are suffering as a result of that. You know, those younger people who were uh, who could immigrate, and those are the ones who would have made a much, much bigger contribution to, um, you know, to the growth of the country.
1: We produced a special report, PDF, for free for our community to download and it's it's a reminder of exactly what happened during the anarchy of the last few weeks in South Africa and the the, the question that I asked there was we've hit a rock bottom but is it made of granite or sandstone uh, what would your response to that be
5: uh, you mean rock bottom? You can't go further well, if you down. hit a rock
1: bottom, you hit a rock bottom of granite. You'll bounce off. If you hit it sandstone, you could easily have another oh, yeah. rock bottom because it's yeah, pretty yeah. soft. That,
5: that's what I—that's—that's that, what I think. I think we'll bounce off this one. I think mm-hmm. people have uh, have realised, and, and nobody wants to go through this again. We don't want to see those images. And um, and Alec, the other point is that business has got to start talking. You know what I mean? Business has to start talking. We can't just accept this. And somewhere along the line, they've also got to uh, make their views known. You know, don't just talk uh, around a dinner table. You've got to make those you know, um, those voices known. And to government. And you've got to force them through. And uh, we haven't done it for generations. Um, I'm always sorry that even in the part eight years, business was very compliant, and easily malleable, and, and never really put their views across, because it suited them to a point of view. But I think you can't do that anymore. You know what I mean? There's, you've, you've also got to now start to drive it. And, and, and um, you know, the time for bowing is gone.
1: You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. John Endres is with the Institute for Race Relations. People forget that you guys are she coming up to 100 years old now. It's quite extraordinary when you look at the IRR and the work that it's done over so many years and so much good work. John, how did you get involved?
3: Uh, I met France many, many years ago when I was working for a funding organization that worked with the Institute of Race Relations. Uh, and I think France had just joined the IRR. Um, I was on the other side of the table, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, we, we got to know each other then. Uh, I worked with the IRR in my role at that organization and have continued working with it over the years since then.
1: And the quality of the uh, products that you guys put out, uh, not everybody agrees with it, but certainly it's always opens minds and, uh, and, and gets you thinking. I suppose that's what a think tank is all about. That's what it should be.
3: Um, And I think with think tanks, there's always the risk that they become too academic um, and, you know, start talking to themselves and their their own closed audiences rather than getting out into the broader world. And I think this is something the IR has been very good at doing, is uh, breaking out of that closed uh, environment and making sure that the message gets out into the broader public. And there I must, of course, uh, pay tribute to the amazing colleagues and co-workers we have at the Institute um, who are prodigious, um, very very smart, and really uh, deliver amazing insights every single day.
1: Indeed, and right now the insights that you've been delivering are to do with China. So I, I've uh, been following the story closely now for some months, and found the the work that you've done on the whole China story to be extremely illuminating. Maybe we can go back a little, because uh, what was it? More than two decades ago, Deng Xiaoping said. It doesn't matter what color the cat is as long as it catches mice. In other words, we might have a communist state, but we can introduce free enterprise in the economy. Is that being rolled back now? Because we certainly have seen some, uh, some very different approaches recently from the, from Beijing towards capitalists.
3: Yes. I, I think that, uh, China still very much sees the benefits of, of capitalism but maybe is getting a bit worried about where it might lead in terms of social freedoms and the spreading of ideas. And this is the common thread of the uh, crackdowns and the regulatory initiatives we've seen from the Chinese government in recent weeks. Uh, they are very much looking at companies that are in the information space. So it is educational companies, uh, streaming service companies, messaging companies um, that all promote the flow of ideas And that, of course, is the greatest risk that exists for a a closed um, and restrictive regime is that people start getting the wrong kinds of ideas. And so if you're that kind of government, you have to make very sure that you keep a tight lid, a tight rein on those ideas uh, and ensure that the companies that enable them to spread know who the boss is. And I think this is really what, what this is about. It's the Chinese government showing the companies that it is the boss, it is in charge, and it will not tolerate any risks or or threats from the private sector.
1: Did this all begin with the Hong Kong uh, protests that have now been going on for some years and landed a lot of people behind bars?
3: Yes, I think it is linked to that. Um, And in in the case of Hong Kong, that was uh, a little bastion, a little outpost of freedom, I think. Uh, Within China, uh, you know, partly independent, autonomous, but I think very much a thorn in the Chinese government side. And ultimately the Chinese government had, uh, decided that enough was enough and it was cracking down, which it did with um, the expected efficiency I think and ruthlessness. and uh, the, the plucky uh, you know Hong Kong Islanders who put up a brave resistance, I think ultimately were no match for the for the might of, of the Chinese state which is um, disappointing and sad, um, but I think you're, you're correct in assessing that as a kind of turning point where uh, China decided to stop playing games, to stop playing around and become quite serious about asserting its dominance.
1: It seemed to start in the business sphere with uh, Jack Ma and Alibaba. Uh, that, what uh, sparked that?
3: Well, it, it, it's... Uh, a little bit unclear, but I, I, I think that the reason why the government took aim at Alibaba was that uh, Jack Ma was building up something like a rival center of power. He was becoming so powerful as China's wealthiest man uh, with a hugely successful company to his name. And he also started becoming quite outspoken in his criticism of the government. Um, he started expressing himself quite freely on the international stage. Uh, and I think that that uh, led to a point where the government thought that it was becoming a bit much and decided to rein him in and did so um, quite dramatically and effectively. And I think that was the starting point of the process that we still see unfolding now, where the government uh, demonstrated that your wealth, your influence, your power, your success, your business acumen offer no protection against uh, this state. And in the risk note, which we published earlier this week, we also mentioned the case of um, a pig farmer in China, which on the face of it sounds like, you know, uh, an amusing anecdote that uh, there's a fight between a pig farmer and and the Chinese government. But of course, the point is that this was not just any pig farmer. This was a multi-billionaire, a very, very wealthy businessman with a, a large business empire who had been um expressing support for dissidents and supporting human rights lawyers and also fell afoul of the government for that reason and was sentenced to a draconian 18 years in prison um, for uh, having spoken up and for causing trouble effectively. So, you know, as as slight as that risk might seem to us um, as Westerners, to the Chinese government, this was clearly perceived as a very significant risk and one that... uh, uh, justified being responded to in a very dramatic fashion. Um, I think also to make an example of him for others who might think of emulating uh, him in supporting dissidents or human rights lawyers.
1: Mr. Sun, big story on the on the Wall Street Journal about that. There's 18 years in jail for simply criticizing the stuff we do here every day and take for granted. But, of course, in South Africa or certainly a media company, we don't have a censor sitting in the office uh, who has to check everything before it gets produced? And sometimes we we take these freedoms for granted. Uh, South Africa's connection, though, in this is through Naspers, which bought fifty um, percent of Tencent. I think it was back in two thousand or two thousand and one. Paid thirty million dollars. It's now worth billions of hundreds of billions of dollars. It's been a, a huge success story. However, it's also now got to the point where. Uh, you have to wonder given that the chinese government is targeting or appears to be targeting tencent what kind of an impact that will have on nasdaq and indeed on south africans who uh, have got a disproportionate percentage of their retirement fundings now in that uh, in that stock how are you reading this
3: well i think for, for south african investors and uh, you know uh, global investors more generally what these recent actions do is that they force a recalibration of the risk-reward matrix. And China has been such an attractive market because of its extraordinary growth rates. Uh, it's an it's, it's enormous market that everybody wanted to pile into it, you know, make sure that they got a piece of the action. And I think this is now like a shot across the bowels of uh, the investors who now have to think twice about whether their assumptions were correct. What we also see is this very high degree of volatility that was introduced by the Chinese government's crackdown. Uh, we saw uh, Naspers lose almost 200 billion rand last week. Um, 16 hours ago, there was a story on business day that it lost another 100 billion rand in value in market capitalization. But then three hours ago today, the value was up again. So it's, it's, it's turning into a roller coaster. Um, and obviously what, what is happening here is that it's very hard to read what the intention of the Chinese government is and whether it is only uh, putting out warnings or actually cracking down. And investors don't quite know what to make of this, and therefore they run away and then they run back to get another piece and then they run away again. Um, and that fro is increasing the volatility in the market. Um, again, it is, I think, noteworthy that the Chinese government is willing to accept these consequences. Um, it is willing to accept volatility and the, the destruction of economic value um, if that is required in order to make sure that it asserts its authority.
1: Corky Koiman is from Denker Capital. He's also the country's number one man when it comes to financial services. And we have had a lot of things to talk about today. Corky. I want to start in the most important thing, and, and uh, I'm not sure how close you are to this, but the chaos that occurred during the anarchy in South Africa has had a knock-on effect on the psyche of South Africans. But what about the companies? Uh, We we spoke with Geri Fari earlier this week from Capitec, and he was talking about hundreds of ATMs that have been bombed, he said, out of the walls. But but what about things like insurance uh, 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 companies, even perhaps the deaths, the… People who couldn't get their vaccines, so as a consequence, might have succumbed to COVID nineteen. That we're also hearing from the life insurance companies that their claims are skyrocketing. From a from a financial economic perspective, are you have you got any feel on, on what's going on there?
6: Yeah, well, um, the the advantage in South Africa in terms on the insurance side is that we've got an institution called Sastria. Uh, and Sesria is an independent insurer. Um, and what generally always when you take out an insurance on property, on there's always a Sesria, Sesria insurance attached to that. Um, and it's obviously never been used On the scale, we've never seen anything like this in South Africa causing this amount of damage. So, Caesarea has, over the years, built up very large reserves um, and uh, made a statement during this week uh, that it will be able to pay out and actually process claims fairly quickly. Um so b- the claims are handled through your normal insurer who actually insured you with SASRIA on your behalf. And then SASRIA have what we got, uh, what we call a um, um, a reserve, a um, an excess uh, uh insurance with overseas insurers. In other words, if the claims go more than 15 billion rand, then SCORE or Allianz or Munich Re pick up the tab for that. So SASRA picks up the first amount, um, and then um, the the reinsurers pick up the the excess. So in in that regard, uh, for those who have lost – physical assets and have suffered physical damage and financial damage, uh, they will be paid out uh, if obviously the the premiums and so are up to date. So it doesn't really impact the insurance industry in South Africa because Sasria stands outside the insurance industry.
1: Well, that's very good news indeed because when we had a look at the Sasria balance sheet in the immediate aftermath of the anarchy, they only had six billion rand in net assets, but we then subsequently heard that fifty billion had been transferred to treasury. But now, and treasury yeah. is quite happy to uh, to to make up any shortfall between that and what you described in the reinsurance. Good news all round yeah. by, by business owners who might have thought they weren't going to be getting compensated.
6: Yep. Yeah. So the larger the claim, the longer you wait for being compensated, which makes sense because obviously then it's got to be properly um, yeah, investigated. But but the, the smaller claims, the normal claims, um, it, you know. Will I think I saw uh, within sort of within a month. It's actually fairly quick payout. Uh, and but you are right in the, in what you said just now. The government is obviously helping out as well in in making up for the shortfall that SASHA has that the reinsurers don't cover.
1: Well, I guess they should. So it's, in, in other business. words, the
6: reinsurers and the government, which in the end is the taxpayer again, which pays for it.
1: Yeah, but at least the the government is making good, given that, that it had a, a, a huge windfall. Uh, around 20 years ago from Sassria. Uh, Cookie, yep. what about the life claims though? Are you getting any feedback from the life officers? Because we've seen COVID has really hit South Africa hard.
6: Yeah, nothing yet. Uh, and Liberty is the company that r- reported post the event, and didn't say much about it. In fact, not really mentioned. Uh, obviously, they've been boosting reserves uh, for um, for COVID-related uh, death claims. Um, and I suppose regarding, uh, compared to COVID, this is fairly small. I mean, the psychological impact is massive. But in terms of the number of deaths, it is fairly small, um, so, yeah I don't think you'll see it on the on the life insurance side.
1: We had a training update today from Nedbank. banking shares went uh, stronger as a consequence of that. Uh, obviously they only do that when the news that came out was better than anticipated. <laughs> Did it surprise you, yeah.
6: Um funny enough, the, the share price movement surprised me. Uh I actually checked in our forecast and it's and it's quite close to what NetBank eventually now say the range. Um, you know, we had more or less hundred and forty percent up for for NetBank. It it was fairly predictable in that you'll recall in, in the last year and, and and as the banks were providing last year we said these claims look as if they are excessive and it's not as if we were clever. It was just we were just listening to what management was saying and what we were seeing was happening internationally. So we've seen that almost in every bank result throughout the world so far uh, that there are huge releases of provisions um and that obviously makes the results look artificially very good um if you th- look back then net bank's result next year um will still be i think uh, twenty twenty five percent below what it was in two thousand nineteen eighteen seventeen so you know and and the difference is all still in the provision line so the provision that we've built in for next year is still fairly high. And that might now be conservative still, you know, because now you've had the looting, you're going to have losses from that as well. Um, But so it does show if you go three years out, when all the claims have been processed and, you know, you know, bad debts are uh, there will be, could be more reserve releases or a, a lower recurring bad debt charge. So, you know, we've got net bank going back to an ROE of 15%, and I think this year it's will only still be 12%, 13%. So there's, there's still further fat to come.
1: So lots of upside potentially there. I, I spoke earlier today with David Shapiro, and he said you've got to talk to Corky about China. <laughs> and what he said was that when Corky visited banks in China, uh, it isn't like visiting banks elsewhere in the world because you start off you would have certain executives and you'd visit them the first time and the the team would be there, as what David says anyway. But then the next time you go, the whole team's gone and there's a whole bunch of new people. Was he exaggerating? Uh,
6: not entirely. I think at the top the guys stay the same, but but we would often see investor relations. Uh, we actually did have a few meetings with. Um, with management, you can especially think of ICBC because of their connection with Standard bank um, and you know and we actually brought our own <laughs> South African Chinese analyst with us and uh, they didn't like that uh, because all the meetings are conducted through an interpreter and um when you have your own uh, guy who can speak Chinese and suddenly they can't talk amongst each other. <laughs> so they actually didn't like that. Um, but you are right. It's, it's the, the main thing with China and, and the Chinese banks have looked incredibly cheap now since we started visiting them in 2005. Um, and we've always had huge, concerns about the quality of the assets so effectively the largest part of the let's say five big banks in china have in south african terms escom Telcom uh, post office SAA as their clients. Now, okay, ESCOM SAA are better run in China than here, but they're still state-owned enterprises in which these banks have been pumping more and more loans and at most probably at very low rates. And you've got no transparency because the press in that regard isn't free to know how, what the quality of Chinese airlines or um you know, other state-owned enterprises are. Technologically, the Chinese banks are actually very good. They have caught up. Um, you know, so in terms of your retail consumer banking is very good, but the problems always on the corporate side.
1: So, what are you making, given your regular visits to China and your insights into the way business works in China, with this move by Beijing to attack almost systematically uh, the most successful entrepreneurs, and particularly here in the internet space,
6: yeah, you yeah, I've been reading as much as I'm sure you have and and we've been trying to read you know both sides of the coin and and there are those who say and and you can make a good argument for it that a lot of what they're doing is for the better of society <laughs> um Without giving society the choice to decide what is good for it, but good. Um, But it's more the fact that they don't give warning or transparency. The equivalent in terms of what what happened there is that the South African government, Cyril Ramaphosa, calls another family meeting and he says, well, from Monday, Kuro will have to run and Stadia will have to run as a non-profit organization. Wow. Um, that puts to it in context. What will yeah. to the Curo Studio PSG mm. share prices, mm. and you do that without any compensation and without any warning. I mean, that's, that's the size of what's happening. So I think regarding the financial sector and all the other industries, they have created an amount of uncertainty that that is, I think, done a lot of damage. It will take a long while time before... Investors get the confidence again because you've always got this shock, potential shock coming again. That is another announcement that you know the banks will have to only lend at ten percent because uh, or yeah,
1: whatever has been uh, has been decided on from the from, whatever we decided, which is mm.
6: you know there's there's in theory in theory I see there's a list of of. Uh, enterprises that people are saying could be next, and one of them is the liquor industry. The government could decide that liquor is actually bad, and these guys have been selling too much liquor or over the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I think a lot of guys are now going overboard in what they're writing, but they're just opening the scope to show investors what's happening when your, when your government starts making decisions without consultation um, with business and with its own um, its consumer bodies.
1: And these VIEs, these uh, um, receipts or or certificates through which you actually invest in Chinese companies because Chinese exchange control says forget about dividends.
6: Yeah. Uh, We used to and you can still invest in countries like India and and other uh, Vietnam as well where um, there are restrictions on foreign investors and uh, except we call them a note or promissory note and you trade them through Luxembourg um, so it's more the same effectively you, you buy a note in a share but in, in in India's case JP Morgan holds that share for you in India. Uh, in China it's actually you know you haven't got that same right and again you haven't got a right to vote and you do get your dividends. Uh, and that's why most investors we ourselves when we started investing in India, we did this for a short period six months until we could open our own account in in india and so now, when you invest in India, you actually buy shares in Indian companies that you have with an Indian accountant with yeah, it's, it's all but in china it's you have actually no rights. you actually have a note which the government can revoke and yeah in terms of all the all the focus now on on ESG in terms of G of corporate governance. I don't that can't give you a very high score uh, in your mutual fund that you are holding these Chinese companies in.
1: Corky, I'm sure that you always get pinged with questions from uh, people who, uh, family, friends, people in a social environment who uh, who know you and know what you do for a living, and if they they own NicePath shares. What is your advice to them?
6: Um, you know, we obviously, our South African guys, Claude, in, our, in the Denka uh, South African Fund, own NASPERS and PROCESS, uh, although they made the decision a while ago to just go at index level because of of, of the risks. And the same in our global fund. Uh, our global equity fund owns Alibaba. So you got that same... And, and the way we've worked it out also to our clients who do, do phone us, it, it's a lot to do with your risk-taking ability. And so at the moment, we're standing back a bit and saying, let's first see what the Chinese government will do. Well, normally, when as Buffett says, when there's blood in the streets or the cannons are firing you know, and there's panic, this is when you should be buying. Um, but you're not quite sure... How long the war will last, and what will come, so our advice to clients is you know, if you have if you are young and you have no nupass, this might be a good opportunity to start buying some. But if you already have a lot of Naspas, you can afford to wait, and especially if you're older as well. Um, We do think Naspass is a great company. Tencent is obviously a brilliant company. And, uh, you know, given time, they will adjust to the new circumstances. One cannot imagine that the Chinese government, government will totally, you know, just make those industries unprofitable. Uh, So I think they will go through the process of what they want to do um, and then you will go to a a new normal, most probably lower profitability, more controlled, but still a big growth market. So as an investor, you've got to decide, you know, it's also a question of alternatives. Do you rather than buy Apple or Microsoft or do you still buy Alibaba or or, or Nuspass?
1: But isn't the concern that the Chinese government has already taken out big chunks of Alibaba and given it, basically, the business to SOEs, to state-owned enterprises? And if it starts doing that more or increasingly, then what's going to be left for shareholders in private companies, which are, after all, Hong Kong-based, which is not kind of top of the Beijing popularity lists either?
6: Yeah. Alec, we're speculating here because we're not sure obviously what they're thinking. It is interesting to me in that I think there are two or three international banks who were given go-aheads for for JVs um, in China. Uh, I think Morgan Stanley was one. I think JP Morgan was one where they've now got access to the Chinese market for wealth management products. So here is a government, on the one hand, allowing international banks to come in in areas where they don't have a lot of expertise, um, basically maybe using that, those banks, but saying, look, we want to do business with you. So it's a bit contradictory, but maybe there is a message in this that they want to go a certain route, have started doing this, but are not going to kill off the industry. And the same, so with Tencent, uh, that's why I think there will be a new normal um, with lower profitability. Alibaba, you're right. A lot of it has been given to SAEs, but it would be very, very silly of the Chinese government to destroy large businesses that were built up because uh, then you will not get any, any investor to invest in China. And, and they still need foreign investors for the capital.
7: Today is Thursday, August 5th, this is your FT News Briefing. The world's stock of negative-yielding debt is on its way to reaching record heights. SoftBank is opening up its wallet again, and DoorDash is stepping foot on European soil. Plus, many younger people in China have hit their limit when it comes to stressful lifestyles. The government sees this as a threat.
8: The real irony of this thing is that The people who are supposed to be enjoying the Chinese dream are now in the midst of this hamster wheel. It really is a bit of a living hell.
7: We'll tell you how Beijing is trying to make the lives of young people easier. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The world's negative-yielding debt has ballooned to a value of $16.5 trillion. It's being caused by a relentless global bond rally that's dragging borrowing costs below zero. And this has really blindsided a lot of investors. They were counting on an economic rebound from the pandemic and rising inflation to lift long-term borrowing costs. Negative yields mean investors are willing to pay for the opportunity to lend their funds. Those who hold this debt to maturity are guaranteed to make a loss. The more than $16.5 trillion of negative yielding debt is the highest mark in six months. And according to an index by Barclays, it's not far off from the record of more than $18 trillion that was set in December. A lot of fund managers who continue to expect a rebound in yields plan to ride out the summer lull before renewing their bearish positions. SoftBank's second vision fund plans to invest $100 million in a new fund started by one of its former partners. According to a presentation seen by the FT, Jeff Hausenbold's new fund is called Honor Ventures, and it's looking to raise between $500 million and $600 million for investments in consumer tech startups. The FT's venture capital correspondent, Miles Krupa, explains why SoftBank is interested.
0: Hausenbold was a key member of the Vision Fund team in the U.S. He was responsible for their investment in DoorDash, uh, the food delivery company, which has produced a huge win uh, for the Vision Fund, one of the, the bigger profit making investments uh, to come out of the U.S. So he has a good track record for that reason it makes sense for SoftBank to try to capture some of the upside of his new venture. It's also somewhat common for venture capital and growth equity firms to invest a little bit of money in smaller funds so that they can get visibility into the deals that they are doing and then potentially invest in those same companies down the line.
7: Now we should mention Hausenbold and SoftBank declined to comment for this story. Um, Miles, SoftBank has been on a bit of an investment tear lately. Why is it on this streak?
0: So SoftBank has definitely been on the streak. They're taking a bit of a different approach where they're putting maybe $100 million or even less into companies in areas like software, fintech. They're doing more social media than I think we saw them do in the first fund. Similar to other tech investors that have raised billions of dollars in recent years, like Tiger Global Management, it feels a bit like SoftBank is putting together basically an index fund of some of the largest, most desirable tech startups in the hopes the adoption of things like e-commerce and cloud computing continue at the same pace as they are currently. It's basically a bullish bet on the future of these tech startups.
7: Miles Krupa is the FT's venture capital correspondent. Now, as Miles mentioned, Hausenbold did wonders when he oversaw DoorDash. And yesterday we found out that the US food delivery company is making its first investment in Europe. DoorDash is taking a stake in the fast growing Berlin based grocery delivery app called Gorillas. Sources tell the FT that Gorillas was seeking to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in new funding at a valuation of about two and a half billion dollars, way lower. Than the originally intended price tag. These sources said DoorDash had indicated interest in joining the round. According to the people familiar with the plans, the deal has not yet been finalized, but it could close later this month. It's still unclear how big DoorDash's stake in Gorillas is. Young people in China are opting out of a work culture that requires long hours and creates a lot of stress. Lie flat is the slogan shared on social media, and the idea of what's called lie flat or tang ping culture is captured in this song by Zhang Xinmin, a Wuhan-based musician.
2: It's a
7: message that has the authorities in Beijing worried, says our Global China editor James King. explains where Tang Ping culture came from.
8: Tang Ping or lying flat is the trend towards opting out of highly stressful jobs to essentially do not much. I don't want to overstate the prevalence of this trend because it's still what you would probably call a fringe phenomenon in China, but it does represent an important shift from a notoriously long hours, high octane work life that really characterizes existence for hundreds of millions of Chinese. I think a lot of people have heard of the 996 work life. That's 9am to 9pm, six days a week. That is the reality for a lot of uh, city dwellers in China. So these days, more and more, as costs in the economy rise, They're just feeling like they're caught in a hamster wheel, more and more effort for less and less return. And I think a big part of that is that the cost for big ticket, unavoidable items like education for children, healthcare, property, have
7: been rising
8: very sharply.
7: Yeah, I wanna focus on the education part for a second because young people in China are increasingly shunning parenthood, partly because of the high cost of bringing up children. How bad has this become, James?
8: Yeah, this is a much more serious problem, and I think it's a problem that really rattles China's leadership. Statistics are showing that people in China are getting married much later and that the birth rate is falling precipitously. In 2020, there were only 12 million babies born. That was down from 14.65 million in 2019, And you've got to remember the size of China's population, about 1.4 billion people. That is already a very low birth rate. And some experts in China are predicting that China's fertility rate could become the lowest in the world at some point over the next several years. And there could be less than 10 million babies
7: born a year. Wow. Uh, How have the authorities reacted? Have they taken any concrete steps to make life easier for young people? I would summarize it like
8: this. I would say that China is trying to repair the social contract that the leadership has with the people. So they're doing lots of different things. One of the most important is they're trying to reduce the stress on families and particularly on raising children. If you reduce the stress, then you might induce more couples to have more kids. One of the ways they're doing this is they banned after-school tuition companies from offering tuition to children in core subjects. The next thing is they're targeting online video games and online entertainment in general. We know that they're planning something because one of the big companies offering online entertainment, that's Tencent, has been taking preemptive steps. And they've been limiting the number of hours that young people can play their online games. Beijing has called this a type of spiritual opium. And of course, given the opium wars in China in the the 19th century, this has a very, very strong resonance. The last thing I'd say is that there are signs that Beijing wants to do something to address very high property prices. Property prices have gone way out of reach for many middle-class families. And there are signs that China might want to do something about healthcare costs as well.
7: James King is the FT's Global China Editor. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
4: Thanks for being with us tonight. From me, Justin Roberts, and the Business team, we'll be back at the same time on Monday.